0: Welcome back to History Out Loud for part two of The Legend of Robin Hood and Kirkley's Priory with special guests John Billingsley and Paul Weatherhead. If we move on to the um, second part of the podcast, um, Haunted Kirkley's. Paul, in your book, you say, although one might expect Kirkley's to have a long history of hauntings, the ghosts are rather conspicuous by their absence, at least until the 20th century. Um, why? Why do you think this might be?
1: It, it's strange, really, because you know the stories that have been recorded mostly stem from the the, the early and, and and through to the late 20th and 21st centuries. So it, it's it's interesting why why those ghosts are conspicuous by their absence, and it could be that you know ghosts need an audience and. If this grave was just a dilapidated ruin through much of the 19th century, then you can see why um, a lot of ghost legends wouldn't accrue to it. I mean, it could be also that there were legends or or, uh, spooky stories told about it, but they haven't been recorded and that they've they've been lost.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think um, the privacy of the of the estate currently the. Armitages keep the estate very, very private. That may have been the case even after they took over the land in 1565. And uh, the implication is if it was very, very private, then, as you say, ghosts need an audience. And if there's no members of the public walking around on the estate, then there's nobody to see them.
1: And I suppose one aspect of the sort of privacy around the grave might have backfired to some extent because when the, with the grave being off bounds to the public, that sort of led to clandestine nocturnal visits to the grave um, throughout the 20th century. So that might have backfired somewhat and helped to create the legends that, that the privacy was struggling against.
2: Yeah, and amongst a whole repertoire of, of ghosts, road ghosts are quite common, and this was no longer, but this was a highway, and most of the 20th century ghost sightings are in this highway vicinity. So there could be something going on there as well, I'm not saying this, it just could be. Mm. So um,
0: there's quite a few spooky sightings in the vicinity of Robin Hood's grave. John Hill, um, Paul, you spoke to his son, didn't you, Stephen Hill, about John's experience in 1924,
1: was it? That's right. So um, John Hill uh, lived in the gatehouse um, in the 20s. He was a a farmer on the estate uh, and he told the story to his son who, who shared it, that his father was coming home from a, a night out in the Three Nuns Inn. He may have had a few um, at the pub and he was walking through the wooded area back to the gatehouse near the grave. And um, he described something falling on him from the trees and knocking him to the, to the floor. And when he sort of came to his senses, he saw the silhouette in the gatehouse window upstairs in the gatehouse of uh, a figure, a male figure holding a bow, Um, uh, you know, and he ran into the gatehouse where his wife was at home and there was no one there. So he said to his dying day, apparently that he was convinced he'd seen the ghost of Robin Hood. Um, And John Hill also told a a second story in which he was sitting on Robin Hood's grave one day shooting rabbits, uh, as you do. And uh, he felt a tap on his shoulder And again, he assumed that this was Robin Hood's ghost. I don't know whether Robin Hood was jealous of someone stealing his rabbits or something, but uh, this caused John Hill's gun to go off accidentally and the the recall knocked out some of his teeth. Um, You know, it should be said that Stephen Hill said that this may be some of his father's uh, one-too-many tales.
0: It's it's interesting that he got a couple of teeth knocked out if we um, think to the thing we were talking about earlier about um, Navi's chipping off bits of his grave to cure toothache—that's
2: a great association with drug never made before, and it? Um, it, it it fits also in with with the sense of uh, an acroidian sort of psychogeographic sense as well that events recur in a place. Here's you've got the vengeful rabbit. You can always imagine a, a giant rabbit which of course is always a trickster figure in in myth as well
0: yeah there's a, there's that play isn't there harvey
2: have mm. you heard of that no it's only donnie darko that i can remember as a spooky rabbit
0: it with harvey it's a chap who has an imaginary rabbit
1: well there's always night of the lepers as well the sort of um, australian horror movie from the 70s about giant cannibal rabbits
2: i've not heard of that one what the dog band sang about um the Wauwau Rabbit as well.
1: Yes.
0: <laughs> mm. um, so if we um, if we move on to Edith Ellis, so she also had a mysterious um, sighting, didn't she?
1: Yes, this, this might have been possibly the earliest sort of ghostly sighting that, that that we have, which was the early 20th century. And Edith Ellis used to go and stay with her cousin Alice Ellis. Edith would say that she had heard the ghost of Robin Hood calling out for Marion and and one night both the girls saw that they lived um, in Hartshead, not far from the estate. Uh, They were looking out of their window one night and saw a flash in the sky over the field and the next day when they went to investigate uh, they found an arrow. Um, So you've got these very sweet romantic stories of, of Robin Hood's ghost and then we've got the Hills version where the the ghost is quite mischievous, but still quite comical. Um, and then these sort of contrast greatly with the, the very dark turn that the, that the supernatural takes as the 20th century wears on.
0: The idea of hearing a voice calling for Marion, um, I think you mention in your book that Marion is actually, in terms of the, the folk story of Robin Hood, is added on much later. Is, is that correct?
2: Mm. Marian comes in with the May Games, May Marian comes in with the May Games as the object of Robin Hood's love. Um, we have to remember that the 16th century Tudor period was the onset of Protestant England. And one thing we know from all the ballads that is that Robin Hood's primary religious affiliation was to the Virgin Mary. So I see Maid Marian as a Protestant secularisation of his love for Maria.
0: Oh. Mm.
2: Um, she makes a good for go- good character in May games as well, because they're all associated with um love in the Greenwoods and so on. Somebody says that the um, it was Robert Graves who said that the the Greenwood surname uh, derives from children who were conceived in the May, May Day revels.
0: Oh, really?
2: Yeah, he does say <laughs> that. Uh, greenwoods, I mean, which all come from uh, Greenwood Lea above Hepton Storm. There's a lot of Greenwoods. Yeah, a lot of them around. So um,
0: we're talking about this, the hauntings becoming slightly more sinister as, as time progresses. So if we if we go to 1963 now and uh, Roger Williams, who had a slightly more disturbing encounter, didn't he?
1: Yes, I mean, Roger Williams, two encounters were collected several decades later um, by Barbara Green of the the Robin Hood Society. And his first encounter was in 1963, when uh, he and a a companion were walking through the estate uh, in daylight. And he, he says that he saw a floating female ghostly figure with mad staring eyes and non-like clothes. So this was a you know really, really scary sort of vision of, of what we presume to be the prioress of the Abbey. And then in 1972, he had a, a similar encounter, this time with another musician uh, called Phil Marsden, where he bent down to tie his shoelace. And, uh, and then when he looked up, he saw again the same, Frightening figure with mad staring eyes seemed to be really angry with them. Float past them, and then he suffered um, poltergeist activity in in his house. He says so. Um, you can already see a sort of darker turn to to the uh, to the stories here. I mean, Kay Roberts has sort of speculated that it might be that the earlier romantic tales were associated with the estate and the grave and the um, and the gatehouse being. Better looked after, uh, and that as they started to crumble and, and and become more dilapidated and and overgrown, that the the stories associated with the place became darker. Um, I don't know what you think about that idea, John.
2: Yeah, it's it's possible because the surroundings of the grave. There's no view from the grave. Even the highway has has disappeared now. Uh, you can't see the priory from there, and. Yes, there's a sense of, what's the word, neglect. Yeah, I can see where Kai gets the idea from, and I wouldn't entirely discount it because there is um, Richard Wiseman, the um, researcher into paranormal phenomena, has suggested that um, places that are dark and tangled, perhaps a little bit chilly, Prime the mind to see ghosts. So, um, if you follow Richard Wiseman's kind of line of research and thinking, then that could, yeah, it could fit. Mm. Hmm.
0: Well, also as you were as you were saying, because it was forbidden to actually visit, it forced people to maybe try and gain access in the middle of the night.
2: I've never tried to access the. State through the way that um, the, the the modern accessors have tried to do because as I say it's very private and the easy way in I have been turfed off on my first attempt to get in before I had permission I've never tried it up the hillside and I wouldn't want to either because it's uh, it's not pleasant
1: <laughs> yeah in the dark <laughs> in winter yeah. I think that would be a hard a hard task indeed yeah.
0: Have you, have
1: you not either Paul no I've only been on the you know the um, official walks that, that that have been done over the years um, and you know it's still possible to sort of if you hang around while the tour goes to another area to get a bit of time alone you know just at the grave to take photos and you know you can you can see that if you went there at night it would be a scary experience it's just perhaps
2: um enhanced by the the twisted railings as well. Mm. It looks like maybe a monster's been ripping the iron apart.
0: Um, There's another person that we should probably mention as well, Mark Gibbons in 1998. You you mentioned him in uh, your book, John, Hoodhead and Hag.
2: He was a bit lost in the woods, and uh, this ghost appears and points him in the right direction, which he later said, well, there's a kind of evil atmosphere to it, you know. And whereas I would tend to think of it uh, as quite a helpful ghost, really.
0: Possibly the first um, instance of a passive-aggressive ghost. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody tourists.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. And then we've got Judith Broadbent and Sue Ellis, and they went up to do some research, didn't they, Paul? You mentioned
1: them. Yes, it was, um, I think they were researching an article, I think for Yorkshire Life magazine, and um, Judith Broadbent was a, a, a journalist and Sue Ellis a photographer. And um, when they were there in the vicinity of the grave, Judith heard footsteps behind her when there was no one there, and she felt uh, something pulling her to the ground. She, you know, she panicked and she shouted, get away. Sue Ellis, the photographer, her camera jammed and sometime later she described herself as being paralysed for a couple of weeks. So, um, again, we've got this sort of darker feel to to some of the later tales that are associated with the grave.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think, uh, John, you mentioned about the idea of someone's camera jamming being quite a common thing when people are talking about um, supernatural experiences.
2: It's a contemporary folklore mo- motif, um, not just experiences, but certain places of power, you know, stone circles and so on. It's, it's something that I've experienced as well, so I can't dismiss it, but I feel often it's, it's a kind of useful trope to throw into the conversation when you're recounting an experience. Cameras do go wrong, uh, and sometimes you can just do the wrong thing with your camera. Um, I don't want to dismiss it because I say it's happened to me, and I've had some weird things happen with cameras at places. So,
0: yeah, I always find taking photographs, if there's something you really want to take a photograph of, that's when you get the most fumbly.
2: Yes. Um, with the old cameras, you could get things wrong mechanically quite easily. Um, with digital cameras, other things are going on. And of course, it's digital cameras which show orbs, which I don't really hold much faith in, but cameras, it's interesting the way the artificial eye floats in and out of the whole idea of haunting.
0: Yeah, very true. So now we come to the Kirkley's vampire. Paul, you say um, it's not easy to get to the bottom of the Kirkley's vampire story because of the different accounts and the different people involved.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think there seem to be three central figures. Um, One was Barbara Green, who's the founder of the Yorkshire Robin Hood Society. One was Bishop Sean Manchester, who uh, claims to be a vampire hunter. And then the, other, the third figure is David Farrant, who is also a kind of rival vampire hunter. And they all came together in this this weird sort of triangle of, of mutual recriminations and falling outs and so on. But um, Barbara Green founded the Yorkshire Robin Hood Society to, to raise awareness of Robin Hood's Yorkshire connections and also to campaign for public access to Robin Hood's grave. But um, I think, at some point in the 80s, she met Bishop Manchester, who called himself Lord Manchester at that time. And she met him and uh, invited him to be the patron of the Yorkshire Robin Hood Society. And so I think it was in that, that the sort of birth of the, the vampire legend begins. I mean, Sean Manchester is an interesting character. I mean, he, he's written several vampire related books, one of them about the Highgate vampire, in London and one book called The Vampire Hunter's Handbook, which deals with his adventures with the Kirkley's vampire.
0: So um, we, we better establish first of all, that when, when we call him Bishop, it's not Bishop in the traditional sense, is it?
1: He's a Bishop of the old Catholic church, which from what I remember is a, a sort of a splinter that came from Germany a few hundred years ago. Um, so I, I don't know any, any details about uh, his status as a bishop.
0: Right. So we've, we've got our three people. We've got Barbara Green, we've got um, Bishop Sean Manchester, and we've got David Farrant. Um, what actually happened with regards to Kirk Well,
1: we've got Barbara, Barbara Green starting the Yorkshire Robin Hood Society, and then later meeting Sean Manchester and inviting him to become the patron. Uh, of the of the society, and it was soon after that I think Barbara had read here some of Sean Manchester's books about the Highgate Vampire, and that led her to correspond with him about the possibility of the the spooky experiences uh, around Robin Hood's grave being uh, vampire related, because of course Robin Hood's death involves a lot of blood, as as we heard in uh, in John's retelling of that story, so. She wondered if there'd be a, a vampire connection and um, discussed it with Sean Manchester. And that seems to have been the, the genesis of the Kirkley's vampire story.
0: Yeah. And um, he he then corresponded with Lady Armitage, didn't he?
1: Well, um, Lady Armitage would have received a letter um, from the International Society for the Advancement of Irrefutable and Like. Enlight- Anthropic research. This was in 1989, asking for permission to come to the estate um, and have a dig around the grave and to hold some vigils and blessings. And she curtly said no. Um, So the next thing that the Yorkshire Robin Hood Society and and Sean Manchester did was send her reply and and their request to the media. And, you know, they had a field day. One of the headlines, I think it was in the Liverpool Echo, was did a vampire kill Robin Hood? Batman want to dig up Robin Hood. So, the, you know, the media loved it. Um, Lady Armitage probably didn't. On a
2: personal and, and on a social level as well, this kind of attention would be anathema to her. You know, and also, as a landowner, um, the, the pressure that Yorkshire Robin Hood Society was uh, making towards making the the estate or the grave area of the estate publicly accessible into some kind of tourist site, bearing in mind that the also that the Kirklees estate is a wonderfully tranquil place. All of this would have just rubbed straight up against um, Lady Armitage. But there's one other point that I think does need underlining. When you read about the grave and the death and so on, you kind of think, hell that. Heck, did we get to a vampire story? Yeah. When you think that the story is of Robin Hood being bled dry, it's not such a huge imaginative jump.
0: No. Mm -hmm. So Barbara Green and um, Bishop Manchester have been refused access to the grave. So Bishop Manchester then decides he's going to take a an evening stroll shall we say up to up to the grave um so this was April wasn't it 1990 what happened?
1: So this this is taken from his book The Vampire Hunter's Handbook um he recounts how with uh, a, a couple of colleagues he fought his way through the the brambles at night to make this um illicit visit to the grave and uh they came across a dismembered goat Um, so the the insinuation there that there's some kind of black magic going on or some kind of blood sucking going on at least Um, and they they found holes around the grave which he suspected might be where the vampire was getting out of the grave Um, and while they were there um, he he said that he heard a, a horrific wailing and he you know he got out his crucifix held it up and said behold the light but the wailing wasn't coming from a vampire or a ghost or anything it was coming from one of his colleagues who claimed to have seen a, a darkly clad woman who first looked very serene and, and, and beatific, but then suddenly morphed into a horrible, scary, red-eyed wraith. So they, they spread holy water um, around the area and, and that was the end of their graveside adventure. But yeah, I mean, you can hear, I mean, the, the description of it is uh, wonderfully lurid. You can, you can see it in his book, um, Vampire Hunter's Handbook
0: there's some doubts about about this account
1: well th- there's some doubt about it um because it's quite hard to find at night if you've never been there before mm. um and bishop manchester i can't, can't remember where he lives but it's somewhere down south anyway so and there's something quite unbishop like to imagine him scrambling over a wall and then fighting his way through uh brambles at night you know with a with a stake and uh and the crucifix looking for the grave. So, you know, some people have cast doubt on, on, on that.
2: Yeah. That's when you need a ghost to appear saying, it's up there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Where, where
1: was the ghost pointing the other
0: After Manchester's visit, um, Barbara Green had her own experience, didn't she, up, up there in a similar sort of setting, night time. Um, what happened to her?
1: That, that's an interesting one because I'm not, exactly sure when that took place when I asked her last year and she estimated 1992 um, in her in her book secrets of the grave I don't think it says the date but in a, it was a frosty winter's evening and with some companions Damien Mervyn and spaceman um, they were all intoxicated on various um, legal and illegal substances and uh, apart from Barbara And so they they made their way over the wall and through the brambles and and, and eventually found the grave. Uh, And while the others went off for a smoke, Barbara was left alone in the grave and she she suddenly felt a a sense of panic. Um, Her hair stood on end and she suddenly saw this horrific vision of an ex-boyfriend who sort of morphed into the evil leering face of Red Roger of Doncaster. However, she she's told that story on a number of occasions in different sources in some versions she describes actually seeing the the evil prioress the vampiric prioress hanging there and, and waves of panic coming over her but and then later she sort of described that as being a semi-fictional account and um, i asked her about this last year when i was you know doing the the new edition of weird calderdale and she clarified as saying that really what she saw was red roger of doncaster but also from the corner of her eye, she saw a black shape, which she thought was the prioress. Um, so that the story's been very fluid, one might say. She saw Red Roger at Doncaster, and she, then she saw the prioress. And the last time, I, you know, I contacted her, she 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 saw both of them.
0: There's a couple of good quotes, isn't there, of, of what she reported to have seen.
1: Yeah, this is from Secrets of the Grave, her book, Secrets of the Grave. And this is one of the earlier uh, retellings of the story um, of, of what she experienced on that night in 1992 or thereabouts. And this is what she said. She said, From the surrounding trees I saw and felt streams of evil pouring forth and washing over me. I felt in that instant that I was going to die on the spot. Then, even more terrifying, I saw materializing before me, a person I knew well. Hideous, sneering and hateful, surrounded by tongs of flaming red hair. I was looking into the freezing gray eyes of my ex-lover, yet as I recognized that foul and malevolent visage, I was at the same time aware that I was seeing the specter of the wicked Prioress' paramour, Red Roger of Doncaster.
0: Interesting.
1: But that, that, that was, um, the tale that she, the, the, the version of the story that she told in Secrets of the Grave. Um, but another quote that has done the rounds quite a lot is one that she wrote for um, a vampire magazine. Um, and this one describes a slightly different version in which she saw the the evil prioress. Mm, yeah,
0: she says, Like a bat she hung there for what seemed like an eternity, a black nun's robe flapping eerily while her eyes flashed red and venomous and her teeth bared sharp and white between snarling blood-red lips. So that's very Hammer Hammer House, isn't it, that one?
1: And, of course, Barbara later said that that was a semi-fictionalised account of her previous experience. However, Sean Manchester said that Barbara was being... uh, you know revisionist here, and and that um, he stands by the, the the account with the the prioress as being her original account. So you, you've already got this conflict between between the the, the two of them there.
0: Yeah,
1: it, it's interesting that um, talking about Sean Manchester and, and and vampires, that um, of course people who study vampires, you know, folklorists and academics who, who look at vampire legends come at it from a very different kind of Angle than 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 Sean Manchester does because if you read Sean Manchester's work, it is very hammer horror. Um, you know, it, it, it seems to be from from the school of Peter Cushing and uh, and Christopher Lee rather than from a, a folklore perspective.
0: Yeah, um, you mention as well in your book that um, she she has slight doubts herself, doesn't she? She wonders if the experience might have been attributed to something else
1: she was coming off some prescription uh, medicine she wondered whether that might have led to the panic attack and might have had some uh bearing on on her experience
0: yeah so um i was gonna just ask john quickly um when we talk about roger of doncaster i know we've mentioned him on several occasions in in the course of this recording but um where does the red roger come from
2: red hair I don't know um, it certainly wasn't a wasn't a Bolshevik <laughs> but um, I mean what comes across here is that all the way through the these there, there comes also a point in the in the legends where it all becomes psychodrama mm. and modern uh, Influences, modern media influences, and styles of writing, styles of delivery are clearly having an impact on what people are saying and how, um, what and what people are experiencing. Particularly if, as Paul says, they were under the influence of certain substances. Um, so, in, in the whole vampire area, I don't. I don't think these influences can be discounted at all, but they do take us further and further away from Robin Hood.
0: As the story progresses, um, Barbara Green is introduced to the third person in the, I don't know what we'd call it, triangle. Um, David Farrant so this was in the 90s she was introduced to him wasn't she
1: that's right yeah so David Farrant was um, an occultist, psychic investigator, vampire hunter and um, he was well known in in, in the late 60s and early 70s connected with the Highgate vampire um, escapades where um, some uh, graves had been vandalised and some Corpses had been desecrated, you know, with, with the stakes through them and so on. And um both he and Manchester were associated with this strange Highgate vampire episode. And um, in fact, Farrant spent some time in prison. I think he spent four years in prison for being caught in in Highgate Cemetery with a crucifix, a stake, and a naked girlfriend
0: right yeah taking taking photos is that right of his naked girlfriend in the graves and he's um he's sadly died, hasn't he since
1: he died in twenty nineteen i think and but the 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 rivalry between Manchester and Farron, which started in the seventies you know when they they used to advertise these um uh, duels to the death, these sort of magical or occult duels to the death around london and um this rivalry stretched all the way up to to the last years of his life where um, Farrant used to produce a comic called Bishop Bonkers about Bishop Manchester you know about quarter of the internet seems to be taken up by, by these characters and um, Bishop Manchester produces various blogs and websites that that have various unflattering photos and stories about, the, the, about Farrant and his escapades so it was a long-standing rivalry, and I think it sort of consumed the Robin Hood Society, the Yorkshire Robin Hood Society, when 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 they both got involved in it.
0: Yeah, I'm trolling the internet. I did um, discover one of those posters that you mentioned. Not sure to its authenticity, but um, it's quite interesting, really. It's got a very sort of fanzine look about it. Mm. A personal vendetta over the years becomes a duel to the death between Manchester, Grandmaster of the occult and Farrant, High Priest of witchcraft. So in a sense, poor Barbara Green really unwittingly has drawn to, you know, the least least complimentary pair.
1: Yeah. And as as soon as um, Manchester found out that Barbara Green was in correspondence with David Farrant and David Farrant was dismissing the vampire stories and talking about other supernatural events at the grave. Um, Manchester withdrew his patronage from the Robin Hood Society. Uh, and Barbara offered that role to David Farrant, who, who accepted it. So that, <laughs> that, that was another development in this strange kind of occult soap opera that, that, that um, started in the late 60s or 70s and, and, and went on up to the present day almost.
0: It's it's odd, really, that um, something that's already potent with so much um, superstition and and hauntings then draws this storm into its midst. So David Farrant, he comes up to Yorkshire, doesn't he? And he he visits the grave himself.
1: That's right. Um 2005, David Farrant, um, Barbara Green, some others from the, from the Yorkshire Robin Hood Society and uh, a film crew from Red Monkey Films uh, went to the grave. A lot, and, and Another person there was Gareth Medway, who's who an occultist, and he'd had a wand created in the Himalayas, specially crafted for uh, the visit where they were going to do some ritual work to try and lay the, the, the supernatural of forces that there to rest so that was 2005 the film company were making a documentary about Robin Hood's grave and the Kirklees vampire so um and they I remember them they interviewed me just the day before they were going to the grave and they were very they were looking forward to it um, but with some trepidation about this sort of nighttime visit unfortunately the documentary I think from what I remember them saying was completed but they didn't manage to place it anyway, so I presume that documentary exists somewhere. somewhere. It'd be really great to see
0: yeah.
1: it. But from the the rituals that they did, um, they claimed it was a success uh, anyway. And um, I think how you measure that kind of success, but they, they claimed it was a success, and that the the ghost, the vampire, whatever it was, has you know was laid to rest. Bishop Manchester said, "No, that's not true." He said that there were a bunch of amateurs cavorting in the grave, dressing up in, in, in silly costumes and things.
0: I think um, Farrant noted, and it's interesting because I know, John, you mentioned this as well. Um, he noted that the grave area was unusually quiet. Um, there was no bird song except for the alarm call of a solitary blackbird. So, again, it, it's the remoteness and the enclosed, it being enclosed in brambles and trees that gives it this stillness that immediately sets people's hairs on end so Barbara Barbara Green's no longer active in relation to Robin Hood's grave is she
1: I mean th- there was some activity after the um, 2005 visit and, and Barbara talked about the, the grave being used for witchcraft and, and, and that kind of thing um, it just seemed to me a, a nice place to draw a line under the story because it was, for me, it was just getting way too baroque and complicated and, you know, the story, the story already is quite hard to pin down in lots of elements from the nature of Robin Hood and the nature of the grave and the nature of the, the the spooky experiences and then suddenly when these characters became involved, it just sort of went off into all sorts of weird tangents that it's very hard to pull together but, yeah, she, she said she's no longer active in promoting the grave or trying to get access to the grave. Um, I mean, Bishop Manchester is still going strong and he, you know, he's still publishing work online.
0: I was going to ask you both, actually, um, if you'd met the three people involved, you know, if you'd actually spoken to them personally.
1: I've spoken to David Farrant on the phone. uh, So I interviewed him in 2004. And the others I just corresponded with by email.
2: Yeah. What about you, John? I decided very early on that this was, uh, it was no longer fitting my interest in Robin Hood as a folklorist, looking at the overall, you know, at the overall meaning of Robin Hood.
0: Yeah.
2: If you ask anybody what, what they know of Robin Hood, what they're going to tell you is this: the standard idea. Robin Hood is the robber who takes from the rich and gives to the poor. And that is the concept which um, the whole vampire, the grave thing, has deviated from, really.
1: I, I suppose another thing that, that, that we might mention is some of the Robin Hood place names in um, in Calderdale that maybe John could could mention but because that, that we didn't really talk much about we mentioned some of the stone-throwing legends um, Robin Hood's cave
2: in Skirk below the promenade there
1: there's a... uh, Robin Hood's bed isn't there on um, Black, Blackstone Edge
2: yeah um, there's there's three Robin Hood inns um, Robin Hood's house way up in the wilds of Heptonstall Parish at least two Robin Hood wells, a um,
1: couple of penny stones as well, because there's Robin Hood's penny stone on on uh, and there used to be one on the
2: Wainstalls. They're the ones, they're the stones which Robin Hood threw over the valley. Uh, even the places which don't have his name, um, standing stone in uh, Sorby, is reputed to be a stone at which Robin Hood used as a mark. For quite, is reputed to have stayed overnight in uh, Callis near Hebden Bridge. He's met Little John at Clifton on, on Calder. Uh, it just goes on. He keeps weaving in throughout. You've even got the idea. Robin Hood was a hardy outdoors man, but one thing he couldn't stand was a thaw wind. You know, a thaw wind is a wind that's really biting. It really goes right through you. They were called Robin Hooders, these winds and said the only, the only remedy for a Robin Hooder was a of dumpling. What's that? It's a brick house dumpling, which which <laughs> is a. a dumpling which is so ruddy heavy that <laughs> it just sits in you. <laughs> so it's a, bit of, it's a bit of a slur on, on Brigos as, as well. <laughs> but, it keep, but it keeps out the wind. <laughs> so, you know, he's there all the way. Um, there's one saying which is really important, I think, for this whole conversation uh, that was current in the medieval period, late medieval period. That many a man Talks of Robin Hood has never shot with his bow, and he's he's called in, you know, he's brought into play in conversations fairly gratuitously often. That's
0: been fascinating. Um, Thank you so much to both of you um, for joining me today.
2: And I don't think I've I've spoken at quite such great length with Paul either for ages.
1: Not for a long time. No, it's usually on the bus for five minutes.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: Uh, I mean, my first exposure to Robin Hood was the Disney cartoon Where He's a Fox, so that, that was my first exposure. I guess like a lot of people <laughs> my age would have.
2: Mine was the TV one, you know, the, uh, the Richard Green, that's right, yeah. Da, 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 da. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like I said, Michael Prade was probably my first experience
2: of Robin Hood. There were two films that came out at the same time as well, wasn't it? the Kevin Costner one. And the one with Uma Thurman and Jeff Nuttall in. Um, And the Kevin Costner one was dire. The other one uh, was much closer to the folkloric sense, I thought. Jeff Nuttall was obviously orchestrating the the scenes. We know Jeff Nuttall, don't we? Do we? Leads, anarchist, uh, author of bomb culture, performance artist.
1: I mean, that, that's that. I saw that film at the cinema when I was living in Greece. I thought I was going to see the Kevin Costner one, but I actually saw that one by accident.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> we didn't mention Russell Crowe in his in his accent, though, did we?
2: I, I yeah, I forgot about Russell Crowe. I don't think I saw that film. I, I saw trailers of it and thought I can't bear it. No, can't do it. Mustn't do it. <laughs>
0: You've been listening to History Out Loud, a podcast by Calderdale Libraries, produced and presented by Jill Carpenter. Join us next time when we'll be talking about a chap called Sam Fielding and his connection with the 1886 Haymarket Riots in Chicago.